everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the September 30th, 2022 episode of Unchained. Do you have a burning question for the chopping block? Tune in every other Wednesday with hosts Haseeb Qureshi, Tom Schmidt, Robert Leshner, and Tarun Chitra. Subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained Daily Newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. One Inch is a top DEX aggregator that finds the best rates across multiple networks. Why use a single DEX when you can use them all? Get One Inch on your phone now or swap on oneinch.io. Today's guest is Nick Day, Coindesk Managing Editor for Global Policy and Regulation. Welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me. One quick note, everyone. Nick is at the Circle Converge conference, so if you hear background noise, it's because he was not able to find a more private place to record. So, Nick, over the last week, we have seen the crypto industry surprised by and kind of up in arms about an enforcement action by the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, which actually historically has been seen as uh, you know an agency that's been pretty favorable to the industry. What happened with this enforcement action? Yeah. So basically, in the middle of September, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission announced that it had settled charges with a company called B0X and its founders uh, on allegations that they were running a unregistered futures commission merchant, meaning they were offering leverage trades and margin trades and did not go through the usual process in the U.S. to do so. And that's all well and good. But they announced at the same time that they were also filing charges against Ukidao, which was the successor to B0X. And the allegations are the same, that Ukidao was supporting the uh, listing and trading of unregistered margin and leverage trades. But what's really kind of got the industry up in arms is that the CFTC decided, okay, well, you know, a DAO is an unincorporated association, so this is an entity that we can charge. And we're going to charge people based on whether or not they voted in the governance process of the DAO. And, you know, the question is, is that a reasonable way to approach it? And, you know, many in the industry believe that that is, you know, kind of overreaching or without precedent. One other issue that I wanted to ask about was that the CFTC's complaint mentions at various times that the Uki slash BZX founders advertised that the DAO was a way of kind of putting the protocol beyond the reach of regulators, or they would advertise that the protocol did not require people to undergo know your customer or anti-money laundering checks. I was wondering how much you thought that that played a role in the enforcement action, meaning if we were to take a different DeFi protocol that's governed by a DAO like Compound or Aave, 
obviously those probably weren't advertised uh, in that fashion. So do you think that that was really kind of what tipped it over the edge? Or do you think this would just apply to any DeFi DAO? I, I think that those specific arguments were kind of a, you know, on top of this, we're going to, you know, note the, you know, these things that the founder said. I don't think necessarily that the, at least the claim that putting it in a DAO would bring it beyond the reach of regulators. I don't think that was necessarily a factor. I think it was just kind of the, or the CFTC saying, hey, look at that. You're wrong. The KYC aspect is, on the other hand, you know, absolutely one of the charges. It's a key thing for the CFTC, the SEC, money transmitter laws. It's a core tenant of the U.S. is that if you're offering financial products, you have to conduct KYC. And any company that doesn't is probably going to face similar charges if they're offering these kinds of services. So that, I think, was a definitely a factor. It was a kind of low-hanging fruit. The fact that the founders decided to advertise this as a benefit, I, I imagine, got you know the CFTC's ears and uh, you know they were like, huh, that seems very odd. That's definitely not important. As far as other DAOs, you know, I think what kind of strikes me about this particular DAO is that it was very explicitly created to offer the same you know unregistered products that BZ, uh, B0X was offering. And so just by participating, you're kind of voluntarily opted into this thing that is, again, the whole idea is to violate the law and offer these things that the founders clearly knew or appeared to know that this was not how they should have done it. So I think the CFTC just kind of looked at it as, you know, this really low-hanging fruit. It was a very easy example for them to go after, and it might not lead to a great precedent for the industry, but it's not, you know, I, I struggle to see what else the CFTC really could have done on it. Oh, interesting. Because I did happen to speak to Gabriel Shapiro of Delphi Digital, who this was for my premium offering. And I, as of this moment, haven't released it yet. But he said that he thought that this enforcement action kind of indicated that it could make all of DeFi illegal. So it sounds like you don't agree with that interpretation of, of Gabriel's. Well, so I, I guess first off, I should definitely clarify that I'm not a lawyer and never went to law school. Uh, for any listeners who want to know. So, you know, I definitely respect Gabe. I think he might be right, but I also think that, you know, the CFTC has traditionally kind of painted this picture of being a friendlier regulator to the crypto industry. I don't know that they'd want to blow it, you know, that entire reputation away by uh, going after all of DeFi. But again, I think in this particular case, it was just kind of such a blatant example of a DeFi project that was trying to break the law that the CFTC said, okay, yeah, you know, we're going to go after this. I think that, you know, I think the issue that, you know, Gabe has and that a lot of, you know, again, a lot of the industry has is that the way the CFTC is going about this is by going after any token holder who voted in the governance process. And so the implication there is, of course, okay, well, if you're voting in any kind of DAO's governance process and, you know, that DAO happens to engage in some kind of illicit activity, even if you're voting to be, you know, to not do the illegal thing, you're still liable. And that's definitely, I think, a concern, you know, if uh, you're part of a DAO and that DAO decides, okay, you know, we're going to get rid of our KYC process. We're going to launch something that could require a KYC process. We're not going to have that. And you vote against that proposal. The implication here does seem to be that, yeah, you're still going to be held, you know, personally liable even if you were trying to do your part to not allow that illegal activity to happen. If that's the actual case, and again, the CFTC hasn't said anything really, so you know we don't know if that's how they're going to interpret the precedent, but 
it seems like a reasonable assumption. And so, yeah, I think that is definitely a very valid concern that a lot of, you know, individuals who are, you know, attorneys and members of DAOs that are watching this are concerned with. Yeah. And this actually takes us to Commissioner Summer Marsinger's dissent. But before we get there, just one last question that I wanted to ask you briefly was, BCX actually had also been the victim of numerous hacks in which customer funds were lost. So do you think that that is another reason why this enforcement action happened against them? Was that just like yet another kind of low-hanging fruit type situation? Yeah, I think there was, you know, a lot of attention paid to that. I think there might even have been a lawsuit against the company, which, you know, certainly once you start filing lawsuits and you have those documents out there, it makes it easier for, for example, CFTC investigators who are you know, looking at these legal filings saying, oh, okay, so this company did what exactly? And then, you know, they're going to check and say, oh, well, they never registered with us. So I think the hacks themselves, I don't know necessarily if the CFTC would have just gone after a company for getting hacked, but it definitely made it a you know, more high-profile target. And, you know, subsequently, you know, once that's out there, it is a lot easier to say, okay, well, you know, we're going to look into this company and try and figure out what's what. So let's talk about CFTC Commissioner Mersinger's dissent. She said, while I do not condone individuals or entities blatantly violating the Commodity Exchange Act or our rules, we cannot arbitrarily decide who is accountable for those violations based on an unsupported legal theory amounting to regulation by enforcement while federal and state policy is developing. Can you elaborate a little bit on her objections? One of the key objections is just the CFTC is going after an unincorporated association. And that is a thing in the U.S. It's a term, it's a legal term, but it does seem a little unprecedented in how the CFTC is approaching it. And again, part of that comes down to how are they identifying the individual members. And there's a, you know, a whole other debate around that part, actually, that we should totally get into later. But the question is, you know, who exactly are you trying to sue? Who are the defendants or the respondents in this case? And the CFTC does not currently have an answer to that. She's also got concerns about kind of the legal precedent that the CFTC is going with. Some of that comes down to state law precedent, which the CFTC may or may not necessarily be able to enforce being a federal agency. Again, this was the part where me not being a lawyer kind of becomes a handicap. I'm actually not 100% certain of the legal nuances of that. But the CFTC's case, as I understand it, depends a lot on state tort law. And so a state regulator may want to go after for, you know, a company for that, or private individuals might want to go after a company in state court for that. The CFTC going after an unincorporated association at the federal level in a federal court might be a little bit more tricky. And it seems like one of Commissioner Messenger's objections is tied to that. And the other part, of course, is just, you know, going back to the identification question earlier, there are a couple different ways you could approach DAOs, one being you'd go after anyone who received a token in an airdrop. Obviously, that's not ideal. People get airdrop tokens all the time. They don't necessarily know about it. They don't necessarily you know, volunteer to get these tokens. If anyone who got you know, airdropped a token was sued, that would be pretty bad for the industry. That would be, I think, hilariously difficult for the CFTC to you know, enforce because it's a lot of people. The other extreme is you have to identify the individuals that you believe are most responsible, the ones who are absolutely trying to engage in the non-KYC product offerings, the listing of these margin trades, whatnot. Again, I don't think the CFTC has done that at this point. I don't think they know the identities necessarily, or at least if they do, they haven't said so in any of the court documents I've seen. The CFTC has to still find out who exactly it is they're suing. The middle ground 
seems to be going after anyone who voted on a governance proposal with their tokens. And this is, again, this is kind of unprecedented. I mean, I say kind of, it is very unprecedented. We've never seen this before. My understanding is, uh, you know, in the dissent, the commissioner said, you know, we should, as an agency, put out a request for comments. We should put out some rulemaking and guidance and figure out, you know, get public feedback, figure out how to do this right, rather than put it in an enforcement action, throw it out there where people can't provide feedback unless they're the respondents and just make that precedent. And I think that is fair. You know, this is kind of a situation where if you are trying to create regulation, a feedback process seems to make most sense. If the goal is to just get this company out and in doing so, create a precedent for yourself through the courts, that might be more like what the CFTC has actually done. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the issues around identifying who it is that this enforcement action is for. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. To swap crypto, a user has to choose among hundreds of DEXs on multiple networks, all offering different rates and fees. Do you want to avoid that hassle? Swap on OneInch, a top DEX aggregator built to get you better rates than any single DEX. Enjoy unlimited liquidity across multiple networks and top-level security. Get OneInch on your phone now or swap on OneInch.io. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Back to my conversation with Nick. As you mentioned, Commissioner Mersinger said that she felt that an unintended consequence of this enforcement action would be around this issue that you raised, that simply voting in one of the governance proposals would put you in a new category of being able to be targeted. Whereas if you didn't vote, just if you were too busy or whatever, like suddenly you wouldn't be you know, subject to this enforcement action. And so she was saying that this could actually create kind of like two classes of token holders unintentionally. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, why it is that people are, are concerned about this? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing is just if you are a token holder and you're engaging in a DAO in good faith, you might not necessarily have the expertise to understand, okay, well, is every single thing I do above board? Right. Companies have lawyers and legal counsel. They have internal lawyers, they have, you know, GCs, they have external lawyers, they have consultants. They have usually a dedicated team that says, okay, here are all the things we're doing. Here are things that might be in violation of the law. Here are things that are definitely not. I don't think a lot of DAOs or most DAOs really have that kind of entity. It's, you know, by design, anyone can participate. So, Maybe uh, a couple of people in the DAO are aware, okay, yeah, so, you know, most of what we do is above board, but this might thing, you know, this one thing might be illegal. And if most of the DAO is unaware, then they might be held liable for something that they didn't know about or that they weren't, you know, informed enough to want to, you know, avoid it. And that could be a problem, right? If uh, you are participating in good faith, you're, you think everything's above board and suddenly you get sued, you know, that's damaging it's a problem you know for any individual who gets sued of course it's going to be it might be on your record or you know if people look you up later 
oh, you, so you got sued by the CFTC for engaging in illicit activity? What's that about? Not a good look for a lot of people. So I think that's just one example of how this could be precedential in a kind of, you know, not great way for people who are participating in DAOs. You know, is the effect going to be to depress uh, DAO participation? Um, I don't know. I do know that, you know, you mentioned uh, Gabe Shapiro earlier. I know he has put out a call for any member of UkiDAO to, you know, who wants representation to reach out. So uh, we'll see if they're able to pull together some legal counsel and, you know, fight this. But there are definitely a couple of ways where, intentionally or not, the CFTC might be depressing DAO participation and or not centralizing, but at least limiting kind of the growth of this industry in a way that people weren't really expecting or, you know, you know, even thinking about before. Yeah. And I saw Tim Copeland of the block wrote an article where he said there were more than 2,200 DAOs and it was like um, about $10 billion worth of value in those DAOs. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, Commissioner Mersinger was concerned that this could have a chilling effect on voting in the DAOs and frankly, perhaps on DAOs altogether. Um, so now let's talk about, you know, an issue that we alluded to earlier. The CFTC posted a notice in the Uki DAO forum that the members were being served um, and they used the username CFTC Enforcement. And I wondered you know, what you thought of that method, would there be any defense for people who are Ukidao token holders that they weren't properly notified or what are people saying about this method? Well, so, yeah, I mean, I think the big problem there is we don't know if the actual DAO holders were notified. So what the CFTC did, and this is based on legal filings from earlier this week, first off, they posted the announcement of the lawsuit as well as how the filings on the a forum in the Ukidao website. So, I believe that's ukitrades.com. Anyone can read a forum post, but at the same time, you know, I, I've only been part of a handful of forums where I got notifications every time someone posted. I don't know if I'm, you know, it's an opt-in kind of thing. So you don't know for sure that the members who have voted received that notification. The other thing the CFTC did was uh, they posted the filings and the complaint in a help chat bot on the website. And again, we don't know who that goes to. Right? Does that go to a single individual? Does that go to the team? Is there a team to begin with? We don't know who exactly received that. But what the CFTC has done is asked a district court to approve that, approve these methods as proper service and say, all right, well, you've done your part. Now the DAO members are aware that they have been served and have to respond. And they have to respond within, I believe it's three weeks of whenever that's approved. So the CFTC says they posted those documents on September 22nd, meaning the if approved, the DAO would have until middle of October to respond. Uh, otherwise, you know, we'll see what the uh, what the judge says, but there's no certainty there. And the CFTC, in fairness, I guess, you know, the issue is, and they said this in their documents, there's no listed officer, there's no listed secretary or agent. They don't have any publicly identifiable people to serve. And so uh, this is, seems to be the kind of the, you know, best method of trying to get in touch. One of the uh, paralegal who filed one of the court documents also said that she had been in the Ukidao Telegram group and noticed that people were talking about the lawsuit in that. And so clearly they're aware. But again, we don't know who's actually in that Telegram group. I've looked at the Telegram group. It was not particularly active. The most activity happened after one of the admins apparently left, uh, publicly announcing their departure, saying it was time to move on. 
coincidental, I'm sure. But, you know, it's, uh, there, there's a lot of uncertainty here. And if the DAO responds, maybe we'll have a better sense of, okay, yeah, we know that they saw this, or we know that they were, you know, they received a lawsuit. Until then, all we know is that the filings were posted to a website and submitted to a chatbot. And whoever's on the other end, we do not know. Definitely um, doesn't seem like the surest way to deliver that kind of news. So at this moment, you know, what do you think will happen next? What are the DAO forum members discussing? You know, what are you hearing and what are you looking out uh, for in terms of upcoming steps? It's really hard to say. I think there's probably going to be a lot of community support for this project. But at the same time, it's difficult for me to see how exactly the actual facts of the case might be in dispute. And, you know, frankly, it does look like, again, this was a DAO that was created very explicitly to continue on the same activities that the company B0X was doing. And the founders of the company clearly knew that, you know, there were some issues here. They settled. They also settled, by the way, for $250,000, which is a pretty small fine. I mean, it's a lot of money, but relative to a lot of the fines that we see, it's pretty small. So, you know, uh, in that settlement, the founders settled not only the B0X charges, but they also will not get charged for their activities as part of the DAO itself. They seem to have clearly recognized, okay, yeah, this is not good for us. And so even though the B0X settlement will, in theory, the case will not be used to support the Uki DAO case, it's the same facts and circumstances as far as I can tell. And so it, it's not a good case for the DAO at all. What that means for the industry at large is probably the bigger question. And that's really going to come down to what kind of ruling and judgment the judge, the court comes down with. Whether they'll say, okay, yeah, this is properly served. If they do, then that's going to be, you know, one point against, you know, serving individual people in DAOs in future. If they say, sure, you know, the method that you have come up with is reasonable. Um, that could be, again, the scenario I laid out earlier was a hypothetical, but it's a hypothetical that becomes closer to reality if uh, any voting member of a DAO is deemed individually liable. And if the judge rules, okay, the CFTC is right, the DAO has to disband, they have to you know, refund whoever, they have to pay a fine, they have to cease and desist. Then the next question becomes, you know, how do you enforce that? And then that's when things probably get really weird because we're going to see a federal agency go after a DAO in an effort to shut it down. And I don't know if they will succeed, but... Just the fact that that will be happening is probably going to be a you know a major cause for concern in the industry. Clearly, I mean, just from all the commentary that the various crypto lawyers were saying, definitely people seemed alarmed. All right, Nick. Well, I know that you have a number of activities at the conference, so I really appreciate that you took the time to come on the show and explain this. No, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. 
but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Crypto founder becomes crypto fugitive. This week, Do Kwon became an internationally wanted man after South Korean authorities said Interpol issued a red notice for him. Kwon is the founder of Terraform Labs, the entity behind the Terra blockchain, which failed catastrophically in May, wiping out $60 billion in value. Earlier this month, a court in South Korea issued an arrest warrant against Kwon for allegedly violating the country's capital markets law, and the nation's Minister of Finance stated his intent to void Kwon's passport to force him to return to South Korea. Even though Kwon's whereabouts are unknown, he has been quite active on Twitter, where he stated that he was not on the run and was making zero efforts to hide. In addition, Terraform Labs sent a statement to the Wall Street Journal saying that prosecutors are acting unfairly and that the case has become highly politicized. The firm is also claiming that the Luna token was not a security, which would make the accusations against Kwan invalid. On Tuesday's show, I interviewed Jongbaek Park, South Korean crypto lawyer, who said that the capital markets law has never been applied to crypto in that country, so it is an unprecedented event. Also, this week, Coindesk reported that authorities in South Korea requested that two crypto exchanges freeze 3,313 Bitcoin, around $67 million, tied to Terraform Labs and Do Kwan. However, the Luna Foundation Guard denied ownership of the wallet that was said to have transferred funds to exchanges. Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX won Voyager's auction and is now considering another acquisition. FTX US won the auction for the assets of bankrupt crypto lender Voyager Digital, the company announced on Monday. FTX's $1.4 billion bid, comprising the fair market value of all Voyager crypto assets and additional consideration of $111 million, beat out Binance and Wave Financial. Voyager's claims against Three Arrows Capital will remain with the bankruptcy estate. The lender wrote in a statement, FTX US's market-leading secure trading platform will enable customers to trade and store cryptocurrency after the conclusion of the company's Chapter 11 cases. This week, Ashwin Prithipal, the CFO of Voyager Digital, resigned to pursue other opportunities after only five months in the position. Also, FTX US President Brett Harrison will step down from his position and move to an advisory role. Bankman-Fried may not end his buying spree with the Voyager acquisition. Despite having previously rejected a bailout request from Celsius, he is reportedly examining bidding for the assets of the troubled crypto lender. In addition, CNBC reported that FTX is looking to raise up to $1 billion for additional deal-making at a valuation of $32 billion. If you want to know more about SPF and what his investments might look like, be sure to tune in to next Tuesday's show. Mashinsky resigns as Celsius investors try to impose a separate committee. Hours before news broke about SPF's interest in Celsius, Alex Mashinsky, Celsius CEO and founder, announced he would resign, 
effective immediately. In a press release, he wrote, I regret that my continued role as CEO has become an increasing distraction. Mashinsky also said he is willing to work with the company to achieve a successful reorganization at a time in which some executives were organizing a revival plan. Mashinsky had previously been accused of making a series of bad decisions that precipitated the company's collapse. Last Friday, two Celsius investors filed a motion to establish a committee to advocate for them in the bankruptcy case, although the Celsius Creditor Committee plans to oppose. Additionally, on Thursday, the bankruptcy judge appointed an outside examiner to publish a third-party report on Celsius's storage of its crypto, customer account management, its mining business, and tax issues. And after Celsius requested permission to sell its stablecoin holdings to pay for operating expenses, a Texas regulator objected, saying Celsius was asking for troublingly broad permission to sell assets insufficiently defined for purposes that are also insufficiently defined. Compute North files for bankruptcy as the Bitcoin mining industry stumbles. Compute North, a company that provides infrastructure for Bitcoin miners, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in federal court in Texas. According to the filing, the company owes over $500 million to more than 200 investors and owns assets between $100 million and $500 million. The case shows the stress under which the mining industry is operating. The revenues have decreased significantly due to the bear market, the high hash rate levels, and the global energy crisis, which has raised the cost of operations. Earlier this month, Arcane Research noted that Bitcoin mining profitability had fallen to its lowest level since 2020. To capitalize on the mining crisis, crypto billionaire Jihan Wu, founder of Bitcoin mining rig maker Bitmain, is reportedly setting up a $250 million fund to purchase distressed assets from mining firms. In addition, Bitcoin miner Iris Energy agreed on a $100 million equity purchase deal with investment banking firm B. Riley to fund growth initiatives, and Cypher Mining, a Bitcoin mining company, wants to sell $250 million worth of stock. Global Central Bankers Talk Crypto In an online panel hosted by the Bank of France on Tuesday, the leaders of the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, and the Bank for International Settlements shared their thoughts on decentralized finance and agreed that DeFi and stablecoins need more regulation. BIS General Manager Augustin Karstens believes that DeFi has structural problems and intrinsic weaknesses, and also that DeFi has no infrastructure to deal with risks such as liquidity, counterparty risk, and leverage. Fed Chair Jerome Powell expressed concerns over the lack of transparency in DeFi. However, Matt Huang of Paradigm tweeted in response, This is puzzling because DeFi is fully transparent. Powell also said regarding a central bank digital currency, We do not see ourselves making that decision for some time. However, he did say that a CBDC would likely have four characteristics. One, that it would be intermediated. Two, privacy protected. Three, identity verified, so it would not be anonymous. And four, it would be transferable or interoperable. On a related note, the White House is reportedly considering the exit of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen after the midterm elections. Stablecoin competition heats up. As the government decides whether to pursue a CBDC, stablecoin providers are not wasting time. Circle, the entity behind the world's second-largest stablecoin, USDC, announced it will soon be expanding USDC to five new blockchains. 
The expansion is expected to occur sometime around the end of this year or early next. In addition, the company will launch native USDC on the Cosmos network next year. Having a native token eliminates the need for a bridge, thus significantly reducing the risks associated with moving tokens from one blockchain to another. Furthermore, Jack Dorsey's Bitcoin-focused subsidiary, TBD, partnered with Circle to facilitate cross-border dollar-linked stablecoin transfers and savings. Meanwhile, Lightning Labs announced the launch of the Tarot Protocol, which would enable stablecoins on the Bitcoin blockchain. By the way, on Wednesday, Binance's conversion of USDC, USDP, and TUSD began, as the company tries to grow the market cap of its stablecoin BUSD. USDC's market cap dropped 5%. The CFTC versus SEC turf war over crypto continues. On Wednesday, Caroline Pham, Commodity Futures Trading Commissioner, proposed a new office for crypto retail protection. Pham cited the crypto crash, risk management failures, and substantial retail losses as reasons to provide further protection to investors. On the same day, at a panel at New York University, CFTC Chair Rostin Benham reiterated his desire for CFTC to be the lead crypto regulator, saying that Bitcoin might double in price if there's a CFTC-regulated market. Meanwhile, the SEC has continued its crypto enforcement actions apace. It filed a lawsuit against Hydrogen and market maker Moonwalkers for alleged market manipulation and unregistered securities offerings. Todd Phillips, director at American Progress, explained, The SEC claims Hydrogen airdropped some, but not all, minted tokens, got those tokens listed on exchanges, and then sold some of their retained tokens to the public. Jake Trevinsky, head of policy at the Blockchain Association, complained about the regulation by enforcement and said, The SEC says airdrops meet the Howey test's investment of money prong, even if no one makes an investment and no money changes hands. Proposal to create reversible ETH token standards royals crypto Twitter. Researchers at Stanford University have proposed introducing reversible transactions to Ethereum to remedy crypto thefts. This consists of creating new Ethereum token standards that allow smart contracts to reverse transactions. Token standards are the set of rules that a smart contract must follow to develop tokens. Kylie Wong, one of the researchers, argued, The major hacks we've seen are undeniably thefts with strong evidence. If there was a way to reverse those thefts under such circumstances, our ecosystem would be much safer. However, the proposal caused quite a firestorm on crypto Twitter, where many seemed to feel it would mean that the network would no longer be immutable, one of the core pillars of blockchains. Another hot topic is that the new token standard would require humans to decide which transactions to reverse, threatening the trustless aspect of the network. Matthew DeFerrante, CEO of ZK Labs, tweeted, No contracts would accept these tokens in the first place due to the complexity of handling chains of reversals. Roman Semenov, the founder of Tornado Cash, also raised some concerns about the interoperability of these new token standards with other decentralized applications. Will ERC-20R be incompatible with the current DeFi ecosystem, he wondered? Still, reactions were not 100% negative. Emin Gunsir, founder of Avalanche, thought this was a great idea. And Argent, a popular wallet, tweeted, This was an interesting idea, but the problem could be solved in other ways while still remaining truly permissionless. Time for fun bits! Fast food Mexican chain Chipotle decided to launch a promotion to celebrate the merge. In a partnership with crypto payments company Flexa, Chipotle is offering a 99.95% discount 
on the garlic guajillo steak entree. The discount mimics the reduction in energy consumption followed by the abandonment of the proof-of-work mechanism. What was the name of the promo? Naturally, Proof of Steak. All right, thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Nick and the lawsuit against UkiDao, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't miss our daily roundup of the biggest news in crypto in the Unchained Daily Newsletter. Go to unchainedpodcast.com to subscribe. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Matt Pilchard, Wander Vanovich, Pamela Jimdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.